Hey, this is Eurolike. Uh, I'm Meline and I'm here with Olrun. Hi. And Nils. Hello. And today we're going to talk about universities in Europe, how they work and how they're organized. Yes, and uh, I think for us it's obvious that this is a very close topic to us. We're students after all and we've gone to universities in different countries in Europe, still doing it uh, right now basically. Um, and for me personally, um, when I I started to think about this topic and what we're going to talk about, I sort of looked for a personal connection and I realized that the first time ever in my life I went to a demonstration for any political thing, it was actually in 2009 when I was uh, in my second to last year in high school and it was an, uh, a demonstration for better education. It was um, a time of, of reform in Germany and there was great discontent. I was still in school but there was a a joint demonstration between high school students and university students at the time, multiple actually. And yeah, it was called a student strike. The idea was that students in high school and university would just walk out of class this one day and uh, march through the city or through different cities. It was happening uh, happening in different places all over Germany. And um, at the time, I mainly did it because there were some things... Uh, at school, in our school system that I was really unhappy with and that I think needed changing. And I didn't really know too much about what the university students were protesting for. I was um, mainly concerned with the multi-tiered school system we have in Germany. We have different school levels and um, creates a very classed uh, education system. Um, it's a huge problem to this day, I think. Also, um, the classrooms were overcrowded and the schools are badly funded. That's were the things that were concerning me at the time. Um, the students were um, talking about the lack of, of um, opportunities to, to master's degrees. They uh, were very unhappy with the implementation of the bachelor and master's degree. Uh, those were all things that I just had a very vague idea of at this point of time. But later on, when I went to university and spent some years there, I realized uh, how important those topics actually were. And the four main uh, demands of the student protesters in 2009 in Germany were that they wanted unrestricted access to universities, they wanted um, the grade requirements to be abolished and tuition fees to be abolished, they wanted uh, that the bachelor and master system was not implemented. It, it was a big change in the uh, higher education in Germany at this time. Uh, they wanted back to the previous system of just a uh, university diploma. They wanted the democratization of higher education, um, more democratic controls and more student involvement in how universities are structured. And they wanted um, better learning conditions at universities, that the, the classrooms are not as overcrowded, that there were more student jobs and more affordable housing in university cities. And looking back now, those are all topics that at one point or another really um, affected how I experienced university over the course of the years. And I think when you look at those one of the key factors, especially if you consider the time frame, was in 2009, was that a lot of it revolved around the uh, Bologna reforms, which really shaped university education in Europe, I think. 
Yes, so the Bologna Declaration was actually a solution to the diversity among European universities. So, of course, we have this big European project in Europe. We all want to be equal, if I put it really simply, among all the different countries. And the Bologna Declaration was just one part of achieving that in higher education. Uh, It actually started almost 20 years ago, 21 years ago this May, Uh, with the ministers of education from Germany, Italy, France and the UK who really wanted to, who really started this initiative. So they really wanted to um, have a reform in higher education, as we said. Um, But what did the Bologna uh, reforms actually entail? So we notice it now, if you think about it, I think a lot of people don't even actually know anything about it because it's so uh, in, in our lives. And um, that's why I think it's necessary to to look at what it actually entailed. I think also for most people who are going to university right now, they only know mm-hmm. the post-Bologna system, so to speak. And um, it's you only know about the, the pre-Bologna um, university system from what older people tell you or what you read maybe. But it's um, very vague. Yeah, exactly. And it was actually a big reform. So before the Bologna reforms, we all had different edu- higher education <coughs> systems. Every country had its own way of um, Im- of doing the bachelor and master as, I, as, as we know it now. And what the Bologna reform actually did was introduce this whole bachelor master system, introduce the graduate and postgraduate system, uh, introduce the ECTS, uh, which I'm going to talk later more about, um, with the main goal of... Uh, aiming to establishing internationally accepted degrees, this is actually a direct quote, improve the quality of courses of study and enhance employability. And that employability is a really important uh, point because the whole bachelor master program was actually intended to start out in that way that people could actually only do a bachelor and then go directly into, into the working field or could stay in university if they really wanted to. Mm. But first I wanted to ask you, Neil Samalin, what do you actually see of the Bologna reforms in your country? Well, uh, I'm going to be honest, in France, I don't really know, uh, like, the main difference. It's just the way it is right now. It's so natural to everyone. And I I can see, like, yeah, when I hear my parents talking about their experience at university, um, they had one more degree, like after the second year, you could get a first diploma. But then it was like pretty much the same uh, from what I know, which is very little, I have to be honest. Yeah, I think um, for me, uh, from what I hear, um, at least, like I said, I went to university after the reforms were implemented, so uh, I never knew much about it. But um, I think the the one thing that's often mentioned is that universities are more like schools now more than they used to be um before at least that's what people say and of course it could be that nostalgia is a factor in that but people are saying that universities used to be very distinct from from schools and that today through the bachelor master system um the whole mode of learning is a lot more school like um in that uh, it's a lot less, students have less autonomy and so on. And um, at least when I talk to people who went 
to university before the reforms were implemented. They really don't seem to appreciate a bachelor's degree much. It seems like half a degree to them because before in Germany we just had the diploma, which would be about the length of bachelor's and master's degree. Um, it would vary from subject to subject, but you couldn't just do three years, get a um, a shorter degree, so to speak, and then start working like this. But you would have to spend four or five years to, to get a diploma, and this would be the equivalent to a uh, master's degree today, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say it like that, because, of course, if you think about it, it's over 20 years ago, but still, in 2011, not all universities had accepted this system. It's actually 15% of the universities in Germany in 2011 didn't follow the structure. If you think about it, that's crazy. That's still 15% is still following the old system. Especially if the intention of the reforms was to unify the system throughout Europe, um, it sort of relies on everyone implementing it uh, completely at the same time. If some don't do it, it's just not working, I guess. See, like, this is interesting because in France, at least if you're a public university, you don't have a choice. You have to have this, the same system that everyone else. Like, this would be totally impossible, except if you go to expensive private schools. But, yeah. I also remember when I started to go uh, to university, it was in 2011 actually, um, there were still some diploma students left who were in the pre-Bologna system. And at some point, the University uh, of Cologne, where I went to, introduced sort of uh, deadlines that until this point of time, you would have to finish your diploma because that's when the diploma system would be abolished completely in favor of the master system. And that was actually a big point of contention because a lot of the students were just not having it, that suddenly their, their studies, are they just have this very harsh deadline. Yeah, I think it's totally okay if there is some protest about it, because actually the Bologna reform as it intended to be is not working as good as it should. So the idea was really good, you know, to have equality among European university to be able to transfer students really easily, to be able to transfer as a student really easily, to have uh, equality among the grains, among the ECTS system, etc. Um, however, it's not working that well, and you see that in the ECTS system. So the ECTS system, for the persons who don't know, is... Um, what the universe, what the European Union used to translate um, grades into uh, hours of working to make it more accessible, what a grade actually is. Um, one ECTS, according to the EU, is worth twenty-five to thirty hours of study. If you, if I think about it, actually, I never put in twenty-five to thirty hours of study per ECTS, but that's another thing. I <laughs> The interesting thing here is that every country ascribed a different amount of hours to these points. In Sweden, you have to work exactly 26.667 hours for one ECTS. In England, 10, because they have a totally different system. And wow. in Greece and Hungary, 30 hours. So only looking at the numbers won't say that much, but difference will become bigger and bigger if you look at the whole bachelor degree. So a whole bachelor is 100 and ECTS, so stick with me here. A whole bachelor is 180 ECTS, which translates to 4,806.6 hours of study in Sweden. In Greece and Hungary, this would be 5,400. This is a huge difference for just one bachelor degree for the same amount of mm. hours. 
Another thing, not every grade means the same in the whole of the European Union. Take, for example, Denmark. We all know they have this weird system here. Sorry, Denmark. Um, <laughs> it's actually, they have a grading scale from 0.2 to 12, uh, with a 7 somewhere in between. But why to be better comparable to comparable to the international system? So, for example, if you take a, a get a 4, that easily translates into a D. But where do they use that system in the USA? I've never heard. Maybe you can correct me here. But someone in some uh, some country in Europe using this uh, grading skill. If I would have a two on my diploma and go back to the Netherlands, and the first piece, uh, a person sees that the two, they think they that I failed immensely. Whereas here in Denmark, it means you passed, barely passed, but you passed. Of course, universities will take this into account when they look at your diploma, but. It takes extra work to figure out what this one ECTS point means in a country and what a four is in this country. So it's not actually that easy to transfer to other universities. And comes to that comes also the point that every degree is, and maybe because of this, that every degree has a different uh, difficulty level. We all know these stories about people failing um, to get into medicine in their own country and just moving to a whole completely other different country to actually get into medicine there because it's more easy <coughs> and they know that. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, that's true. Um, it's I feel this shows one of the weaknesses of the entire concept that I want to be too critical about because, I mean, we are European students from three different countries who are studying in Denmark right now. Uh, we did our bachelor's degree in a different country and then could relatively easily go to university here. I think this could be seen as a benefit of this uh, whole Bologna model. But on the other hand, I think as soon as you start looking at grading, for example, the idea of uh, standardizing it throughout basically most of a continent is, uh, it's it's I don't want to say ridiculous, but it's hard to imagine that actually working because there are so many factors that play into it and um, even if you have the same grading scale in every country or a comparable grading scale there's no objective standard that you can apply to how grading is actually done by the teachers in that country what is required of the course I mean there are so many tries to to do this to standardize the the requirements of, of different degrees but it, it to me it doesn't really seem practical and um i don't have a good alternative either i'm not trying to just uh talk this down or anything but i think it's worth to be critical of this uh, this whole intent of standardizing everything yeah and the interesting thing is that the other big point of the bologna reform is and also working that well as they intended it to be so the other big thing was the two cycle structure what we talked about before the bachelor master structure with the intention of making it more easy for people leaving their bachelor their university right off the bachelor however you see right now that a lot of students stick into university maybe because they're too scared to go out in the big world i don't know about that but also because Actually, a master's degree f will give you a higher chance of getting jobs and will earn you higher wages. If you look at a study in the Netherlands, a master's degree will give you a chance of 78% to get a job as opposed to the 65% of the bachelor with higher wages then. It's a pretty significant difference, I would say. Um, and like I said, in, in Germany, it's at least the case that a lot of people really have a low estimation of a bachelor's degree because it's just 
something that's completely new basically in the last couple of years people don't really in the in the wider sphere of of work it doesn't really have a place yet i don't think just because before it was either diploma or no diploma um and it's not even if the reform is implemented from the education side um it doesn't mean that the labor market Im immediately adapts to it i don't think exactly while we're at the labor market let's maybe take a step back first and talk a bit about universities and their financing because we need to have that clear first before we go on right uh yeah actually so i took a closer look to this um to prepare this podcast today and i didn't only focus on finance because finance is only one factor and it's being very influenced by other ones so at the european level people mainly based uh their like analysis of uh, of the autonomy of an university based on organizational uh, autonomy, financial, academic, and staffing autonomy. So we're going to take those one by one and see how they're related. Um, so overall, most of the university are pretty free to choose uh, their head uh, organization and the structure of the administration, which is kind of good because, I mean, if you can't use the money that it's given to you as you wish, um, then the fact that you can control whatever you do doesn't have an impact because you don't have money to do anything. Um, Makes sense, yeah. So overall, uh, most of the states allow like a yearly budget to their university. Half of the time, the university can use the money as they want. Uh, it's one amount of money for the whole um, for the whole university. And sometimes you need you have a certain amount for one department and certain amount for another department, and you can't switch the money from one department to another. Um, which can be considered as good because then you're sure that every department has the money uh, it's supposed to deserve. But then sometimes you have bigger projects and you would want to like just transfer the money even without, yeah. And sometimes it doesn't work that well. So if you take, for example, the Netherlands, you, you see that the money is supposed to be divided by the number of students for each faculty, um, but also by what the faculty needed. and. Um, we're going to talk about this later, but we had huge protests a few years ago because of this reason that uh, the humanities didn't get the amount of money they needed. Whereas, um, for example, the the uh, hard sciences faculty uh, could buy lamps for 60 euros a piece for their hallways because they had enough money, in fact. Oof. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, so the government is not the only resource that university have to get money the fees are also a big part of it and they have uh, universities in europe are actually very different politics regarding fees so if you go in scandinavia and in eastern countries it's free so like lucky you guys uh, and in other countries it's either the government that sets the price and you can't just change it or they set a ceiling that you can go uh, you cannot exceed which says a lot about the politics of the government. Do they want it to be accessible to everyone or it, is there is it very expensive? Um, that's actually the demonstration I mentioned earlier that I participated in 2009, that I think was the one demand that actually was implemented that tuition fees were abolished in Germany. Um, we don't have them anymore. They abolished them just before I 
myself entered university so i was pretty lucky in that regard but um yeah it was a pretty uh, unpopular policy beforehand yeah and then regarding the international students so when i mentioned international students it's students from outside of europe uh, most universities they can just decide how much they want them to pay which also says a lot about if they have like an international project if they w if they want to include um foreign students and then another important part would be how they can hire uh staff for academic staff or administration so almost everywhere nobody really cares about the the administration staff um that's it's not that they're not important but there are no laws um that predetermine what you need to be able to do to work in a university in the administration. When you look at the academic staff, it's very strict. You need to have some characteristic in your background, like for philo studies, and it's also like really hard to get a promotion or uh, being fired. Like you really need to follow the rules. Is that also why we all have these bad stories with administration people? I don't know, maybe, <laughs> could be, I guess, yeah, everybody shares this kind of experience. I think so, yeah. And um, so, yeah, uh, and also the people working at universities, most of the time they have this very specific status uh, that is civil servant. So it's really, part, part of it is really good because when you're a teacher, you're sure that you're going to have your job mostly, except if you do a big, big mess up. Um, you're gonna have your job for life and you have time and money to do your, your research without the pressure of getting any results, which is good. But then I guess we've all had those kind of teachers who've been there for 20 years and they don't care that much anymore. Also, um, you, you, I think a common problem in many universities is that you got those teachers who just want to research basically and they have to teach on the side <coughs> and you see that it's not really their their passion or their strong suit they might be very well versed in in the subject and the topic matter but they don't really know how to uh, uh, convey it to other people so it's um, you know has its problems i guess yeah and actually uh maybe the fact that if they're interested is or not in teaching has an impact on why they teach and on what they're teaching and how they teach it. When I was trying to figure out who decides what we're studying uh, and the actual content of the or bachelors or masters, I was actually quite happy to see that almost all universities are free to design the content of the of the diploma, which allows them to create like a, a specific identity. If you want to focus, I don't know, let's say in history, and because you have an amazing teacher or a super expert in contemporary history, then you're allowed to come. Um, so this freedom of choosing your design allows you to create a very specific identity to you, to the university. And <laughs> and I think uh, this, again, sort of affects the topic of standardization that we talked about earlier. I think, obviously, it makes a lot of sense, especially since a lot of scientific fields, they are very broad with new research happening all the time. There are so many different aspects to look at in every single field. But it also means that between two universities in the same country, let alone in different countries, in the same degree, you're going to have immense differences between what's actually taught. This is going to affect also 
the the type or the amount of work that has been put in for students and um, the the complexity of it maybe stuff like this I think it's very hard to just apply one measure that that applies for all universities of the same program right yeah exactly so I mean it has its ups and downsides um, because yeah you can be specific and if as a student you can choose to go somewhere to be taught by someone specifically or to focus on on a main subject but then like it's kind of unequal uh in the country and even most in the on the continent but overall um what people agree to say it's that universities are gaining more and more over, um autonomy which is a good thing i mean, at least in my own opinion yeah, because i don't think uh universities should depend on the government this would be very risky And actually, I wanted to take a moment to talk about Estonia because I was very surprised. But Estonia is doing a great job at giving more autonomy to its university lately. So it's always like in the four different aspects that we just talked about. It's always in the five top. Oh, wow. In the top, yeah, in the top five all the time. They're pretty good. I mean, all the universities are 100% independent regarding all decisions concerning their staff. Uh, they mm. decide the salary of their employee, which allows them to manage the budget more freely. Uh, since 2013, only, I mean, only full-time programs, but full-time programs taught in uh, Estonian are free. And except if you take too long to go because it can be free forever, I see. <laughs> you have to graduate at, at some point, but still good thing. And they're the one who get to decide how many students they want in their degree. So you don't have um, like too many students and then like which lowers the quality of the teaching. Yeah, I thought the one point, of course, that it's a good thing that the universities are not dependent on the on the on the states on the on the government but on the other hand doesn't that mean that the universities are more um dependent on the market so if they don't get their money from the state who are they going to get their money from if the uh students f charge is actually free um they will get it also a bit from uh from companies from companies investing in their research compa companies investing in s future students and also companies maybe deciding which uh which bachelor degrees or master degrees gets more get more preference because it more used to them and yeah i mean i totally understand what you're saying i actually thought about it when i was was reading all those articles and research about it but when i say 100% independent um with their money it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that the state don't give them money. It is that the state tell them like, okay, I'll give you, I don't know, one million euro and I have absolutely nothing to say in how you use it. I That's how like they, that. yeah, me too. It would make life easier. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, the basic independence is just you're getting money, but the main thing that is important is you're able to use it as exactly as you want. That sounds actually really good. I think this is really central aspect to a lot of stuff we talked about um, financing in particular, but I mean, autonomy, of course, is also important. I think if you look at it like this, there are three aspects of financing that can be sort of independent from one another. You get the financing from the state, uh, the tuition fees, and then uh, corporations with the private industry and all of those 
can coexist with one another to a certain degree. In the UK, for example, you get tuition fees which are relatively high for European standards, um, but this doesn't mean that there's no cooperation with uh, the private sector or that um, actually I think this was used as a reason to reduce or stagnate state funding to some degree. And tuition fees, um, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I come from a country where they don't exist anymore because they were immensely unpopular. Um, and a lot of European countries don't have them. And so for me, it seems the argument for abolishing tuition fees seems pretty straightforward. Like I mentioned earlier, the main idea was to ease the access of students or potential students to universities. Um, the idea, at least that's, that's promoted in Germany a lot, is that everyone who completes the required secondary schooling um, should be able to visit the university of their choice. And if you look at this topic, this is one, I think, where you can see stark differences across Europe uh, when it comes to access to university education, uh, which is a very fundamental part of, of tertiary education, I think. Um, and tuition fees are one of the more uh, visible and the more um, difficult parts of this, I think, because uh, some of those, those fees um, are hard to overcome for people from uh, from low-income backgrounds or uh, who have um, different problems in their life. And you got the other side, which is a bit softer, so to speak, because uh, it seems more meritocratic, but it also has its problems, and that's the restriction of access to universities based on, um, on grade requirements or um, admission tests and so on. And we got a lot of very different systems across Europe there. You got some countries like uh, Belgium or Switzerland or Austria, which are very permissive. Basically, the idea is that every eligible person can um, register for any course of their choice at university, um, uh, which is, I think, uh, sort of the... Uh, ideal system for one side of the argument at least, the people who are very in favor of this admissive attitude and then you get other countries um, not to take Germany as an example for everything but it's uh, very widespread in Germany to have great requirements so the average on your final uh, exam um, in secondary school is basically the, the grade average with which you apply to, to higher education and some of the more popular subjects for example medicine or psychology, they have a minimum grade average that you have to fulfill to get into it. But would that also not mean that there is a lot of stress put on people in secondary school? Absolutely. I think um, it's in Germany, in my experience at least, um, it really depends. Some people I know, they knew a couple of years before they graduated from secondary school that they the one thing they really wanted to do is medicine or psychology. And so the last years of school, they were very stressful for them because the, the grade requirement is is very, very high for those subjects. Uh, I think medicine across Europe is one of the most uh, prestigious subjects in university, one of the most popular ones. And the standard at universities usually is also very high. So um, in Germany, at, at least, you basically have to have straight A's on your last year in school um, to get in there. And that's uh, no easy feat. It really... Uh, shapes the the experience a student can have in school in the last year. See, in France it's different because, I mean, if you want to go to a public university, it's different if you go to private schools. But you're, like, automatically accepted to university. They don't even, I'm not sure, 
I don't I don't even think they ask for your grades. Um, but the selections comes afterwards, especially in medicine and law, when you see you have maybe 4,000 students the first year, and then only there the selections at the end of the first year, there are only like maybe 400 sets. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really, really hard. But you can just go to the uni as you want. And actually, because of this, it's not as prestigious as it used to be because it's so easy to get in and it's kind of where you go when you don't know what you want to do. And um, to see if it works out, so to speak. Yeah, and you don't have to work really hard for it. So, so I'm not saying that all students are like this, mm-hmm. uh, but some students just don't care because they're just getting like keeping busy in waiting to find I something see. better. And it also seems very, very harsh to have this sort of... Uh, filter system in the first year of university it's i mean um that's one of the reasons why this um restrictive approach to higher education is criticizable it puts all of the pressure on on the students did you also have that teacher who said to you look at the person next to you left and right (laughs) and all those persons will be gone at the end of the year i actually never had that i just noticed from movies but (laughs) it was a harsh first lesson (laughs) <laughs> Did you actually have that in university? Yes, of course. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, it seems like such a cliche phrase. I didn't actually think someone would, and would say this. And I studied literature studies, so <laughs> you can imagine where it comes with law, you know? Yeah, it's weird. Um, but, I mean, it's, it. I think this is also something, it might be so, such a widespread attitude because it sort of um, plays into this elitist self-image that some academics have, right? You don't, some academics, and I don't want to be too accusatory here, but I mean, I feel like some academics, they don't really want university to be a place for everyone, but they want it to be um, prestigious and sort of elite to a degree, right? Which is really interesting when it comes to, again to the bachelor and master structure. So actually, I think the intention was, and I don't want to speak for the EU reformers here, but the intention was that the master was actually only for universities, for, for people who wanted to get their PhD, so to speak, to get a more in-depth learning of their subject, but not really necessary for the working field. Um, and yeah, it really fits into it, because if you say all these elite academics who don't want people only for their practical um, stuff going into masters, well, they actually have done a bad job here then. Yeah, if that actually yeah, was their like intention. I don't know. It seems like this is a really difficult subject because while these these restrictive policies, they have their problems and um, I mean, I've, I feel like I've been complaining about them a lot in the last couple of minutes. Uh, there's also the, the the opposite side of the coin, so to speak, which is um, overcrowding in universities. And this is a huge problem across Europe as well. How is that not negative? <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, <laughs> that's the the negative, uh, or some say it's a negative consequence of being too permissive in uh, access to universities. If you don't restrict access through these measures we just talked about, through grade requirements or tuition fees, when everyone can just go to universities, uh, so the critics say the result is that all the universities are going to be overcrowded really quickly, and this sort of um, damages the learning experience for everyone in the end. And, I mean, it's hard to deny. Um, you can read about it everywhere from the UK uh, to France to Germany, the Netherlands as well, I think. Um, it is a immense problem that uh, classes are too full, people don't even have enough space to sit uh, in the lectures, um, the 
the lecturers, the professors, they're overworked. They can't put really the the effort in teaching the individual student. They have to be very uh, broad in their pedagogic approach. And I mean, I don't, uh, again, I don't have like the a wonderful solution to this i mean the obvious answer would be to put more funding in universities but it's the topic we talked <laughs> about earlier but um throwing money at the problem is always uh easier said than done i guess so um uh what to do what do you guys think where you fall on this debate do you think uh, there should be a, a restriction to university access and um if so how or do you think um it should be very free and then we figure out how to do it I think there would also be a third solution. So I don't know how it is for you guys, but I come from a family where everyone is an academic. And for me, it was always a clear path to go from uh, high school uh, straight into university and with me a lot of uh, others. Um, but if you think about it, not everyone wants, really wants to go to university. So actually universities are intended to be really theoretical, really academic. Um, yeah, that's actually in the name itself. And there is also, I don't know how it is in your countries again, but in the Netherlands you have this distinction between three different post-high school educations you can have. You have the, the really practical one, the half-practical one, sorry if I butcher it completely, but the half-practical one, and then the real theoretical one. And you can actually make this choice. So what do I want to be later in life and how do I want to be it? Want to, do I want to be a cook? Then for a cook, it's not really necessary to go into university because you want to be more focused on the practical stuff. But people actually don't do that. People try always to get the highest grade as possible or the highest education as possible because of the stigma that's around lower education, so to speak. But uh, uh, the stigma around the practical one. So I think the solution here would also be to focus on that, to have a more positive understanding of the practical studies, because it's actually really cool if you really know how to cook um, in a practical way and not only in a theoretical way. Yeah, and in Germany, I, I think at least in some fields, you can't generalize it, of course, but there's actually uh, a demand in, in young people who go into these practical fields rather than going to university, which for at least a large portion of the uh, high school students has become the default, so to speak. Uh, it's the same in France. Uh, over the past few years, like the politics have been really working on making practical um, studies look more appealing because it used to be like, if you can't, I mean, if you don't have the level to study at the university, then you would choose like as a like, very last choice to go to, to this kind of studies. But now you're kind of going back to it, especially because there are no jobs for academics in France. Um, I have friends, they have like a PhD and they work as cashier um, in like a supermarket. Wow, that's depressing, yeah. They're like a PhD in psychology and, no, and there's no job. Well, the people they help will be really <laughs> happy with that, right? <laughs> but it's just, yeah. No. But I think there's also a problem of, of expectations and some of them are... I think very much grounded in reality that with a academic degree, at least that's what you're told when you're in school, or at least it was the case for me, that you have the chance to get a better paying job, you get more career opportunities than if you go straight into a learned profession and you do this, this practical path of education, you get to a job and of course you can also have a career there. But I think in Germany at least there's this suggestion that this is the sort of division between 
middle and working class or something like this, um, which it's not necessarily true. A lot of people in the practical fields are also very solidly middle class. But I think it, it has to do with this. People, um, there, there's the suggestion in society, I think, that one is more lucrative on the long run than the other. Yeah, if you think about it, that in high school, that's also more or less an echo chamber because all your teachers, they also went into universities. That's true. So maybe it would help more if we had more teachers who went into practical schools. Also, I feel it's, I mean, I could just speak for myself. When I was in my last years of high school, I was very unsure about the future and um, making such a huge commitment uh, at that age, it's, um, it's, pretty cool, uh, it's pretty difficult to do and I don't necessarily regret my decision, but um, I also think for for a lot of people in the same position it might feel like closing a door if you decide to not go to university while going to university at least seems to leave more options open uh, on the long run that's at least how i perceived it it just uh, in france it seems like yeah as i mentioned before it's where you go when you don't really know what you want to do. I mean, of course, you can go to the university with a specific plan in mind and study history to become a teacher or whatever you want to be. But it's also, yeah, taking more time and just keeping busy in in this kind of waiting period. Yeah. Because that's the thing, right? If you, you're, I think, 17, 18 when you finish high school, what do you know by that age? If I look back on that, I'm, that was four years younger. I was so young and innocent at that <laughs> stage. And if you think about how long you take for a practical stu- school to, to be done with, so that takes you four years and then you go into the working field, that would mean that at this point I would already be cooking in a restaurant. And I'm not ready for that. I need more more time. So maybe that, that is a bit of the problem as well, as you pointed out, that we need more tri- time to transition. We need more time to leave the nest, so to speak. Yeah, because I don't think it's a huge problem that you don't know what you want to do and it's okay. Like we have so much pressure on in France, they start asking you when you're 14, like, what do you want to do with your life? And you're like, I don't know, I'm a teenager, life is hard enough, you know, like don't ask me those big questions. Um, in Germany, actually, um, uh, a couple of years ago, they reduced uh, the time you spent in high school by one entire year. So I was one of the last um, students to actually do the, the longer version, which includes nine years of high school uh, plus four years of elementary school. And now it's just eight years. So they s- sort of made the problem worse in the eyes of many people. Uh, I mean, I said when I was at the end of high school, I was sort of unprepared or was not sure where to go. I can't imagine doing it an entire year earlier. Um, and it also... Uh, incidentally, uh, wasn't a problem with overcrowding at universities because then I had this one year where basically two years worth of high school students graduated at the same time um, because the one, uh, the first year of the shorter graduation period graduated at the same time as the last year of the, the longer one. And during that year, it was complete chaos at a lot of universities. So many people um, tried to enroll at the same time and the uh, university were completely unprepared for it. So... It seems to be a, a compounding problem to a degree. Um, and I mean, if I think about it, maybe one possible solution would be to also include some more practical learning into high school education. But then again, this also, you get limited time to do stuff, right? And I mean, it's it, 
it seems like you would have to sacrifice something else to do that as well. It's always a, a question of limited time and limited resources, so it's a real conundrum, I think. What about sacrificing sleep? <laughs> as a high school student, I wouldn't have been willing to do that, I don't think. And actually, what you're saying about the fact that we only have a limited amount of time, that uh, they're trying to push us, you know, in the work um, field, in the work area, I don't know how you call it, uh, as fast as they can without giving us uh, so much time to think about it. It's also based on the fact that you need to be productive. Like, you cost money as a, when you're a student, and we need people working. So, yeah, it's all about productivity, right? Yes, exactly. So in the Netherlands, we actually have a name for the day, as in the they are putting the pushing us towards the university, uh, out of the universities, not towards them. Uh, he is named Peter Duisenberg, and not to put the actual all the blame on him, because it has been a discussion going on for over a few years now. He is a parliamentary member in the Netherlands, or ha was. He's now actually the chairman of the Universities Association. So that's interesting because he said at one point. If the um, if all these people are unemployed, maybe we should start thinking about if the study there they did is still relevant. It's a bit scary if you think about it. So what he actually does is equals your your bachelor and the the value of your bachelor, um, and to what you mean for the labor market. If your bachelor doesn't give you the right um, preparation for the labor market if your bachelor doesn't give you right away a job and a relevant job in his in his words and we still don't know what relevant is according to him then we maybe should start thinking about um, getting that bachelor out of the university so that would mean if you think about it that the whole humanities would disappear because let's face it not a lot of humanities prepare you directly for the labor market and that's exactly the point of humanities um, and also a bit of social sciences, maybe law not, but maybe a part of law. And the whole faculty of natural science would exist because, I don't know, exact math is important for the labor market. We don't know. But that's the thing with uh, lots of degrees. I think um, they put people into jobs in the end, but it's not necessarily that they apply the exact thing they learned in the class, but it's more that some of the degrees, they also give you transferable skills, right? For example, a lot of people who study math in university, they can do all kinds of jobs in the end, uh, just because they have a very good um, education in this uh, sort of logical and systematic thinking that they can apply in a bunch of different fields. Yeah, and I also have the feeling that this Peter Duisenberg uh, understood the concept of university wrong in this case, um, because it's not actually the university who is preparing you for the for the job. That's what you have to do by yourself. It is you who has to do all the internship. It's you who has all the do all the extra practical stuff. The university will only give you what the university can give you, namely a preparation for a postgraduate or a PhD, or in that case, and what you do with all those skills you learned, the analytical thinking, or I don't know uh, what they do in natural sciences, but I think something relevant is to do is is up to you what you do with it yeah absolutely i think it's it's a dangerous misunderstanding of what the universities are supposed to do because this is exactly i mentioned this earlier that people criticize that universities have become too much like schools and this is exactly the view that literally says a university should be nothing else but a school 
where you put people in and they come out with a degree and are productive workers afterwards. Um, the the whole idea behind universities initially was to to further the sciences, to advance knowledge, to give people the tools to work academically and acquire knowledge. And yes, most people who visit universities, they're not going to stay in academia, but still I think universities are also an end to themselves in the sense that... Um, as a society having this this means of of spreading knowledge and really uh, acquiring knowledge of of these methods that we learn of researching and really uh getting deep into different topics it's it's so valuable and just to dismiss it because there's no clear economic purpose you can put to it or the it <laughs> doesn't produce enough profit that's i mean that's just beyond cynical to me. I don't understand that at all. So a few students in the Netherlands also thought that was a really cynical. And in 2014, there were these big protests going on. Uh, students squatted university buildings. Uh, they got uh, university or parliamentary members talking to them to finally hear about their problems. There's a lot more going on to this, which I won't go into now. It has to do with financing of the students, with changing the whole university system in the Netherlands, and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, because it all comes down to um, making the universities more profitable, and this is the exact thing that they were protesting against. Yeah, and I think you can see this all over Europe, basically. I mean, we started out the program with this, and I think comparatively in Germany, students are pretty mild when it comes to this. Um, I have a friend who went to a uh, university in London and she said that there was very common to have occupations of different university buildings and they had some uh, pretty big ones that made international news also um, because students are just uh, very dissatisfied with the general direction the education policy is taking, higher tuition fees and um, not enough uh, Involvement of the, uh, uh, of the students into the organization of the university. We talked about uh, the structural things of the university earlier. I think um, you have problems like this all over Europe, really. And actually, it's a pretty good thing, at least in my point of view, that students are fighting and debating on what uh, universities should be. It's just they care. It's not only about productivity. And they're actually getting involved at a political level. And in me, I mean, it's happening everywhere. And that directly leads us to our next episode, actually, because in our next episode, we're going to talk about social movements across Europe, about people getting politically, emotionally involved into other stages of their lives uh, to have a more say in that. And that's all what we're going to talk about in the next episode of Euro Alike. Thank you for listening in. And we hope you tune in next time at the same place as you are now. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.